Yay old man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Ma, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And it's been a long and frustrating week, as demonstrated by the fact that I'm actually recording this on Friday. So next week's films after this episode are already out. But the huge storms that hit the UK last weekend made me reluctant to go out, so that delayed all the films I wanted to watch, and I only managed to finish them yesterday, i.e. Thursday. So here I am on Friday recording about last week's films. And because my schedule got so delayed, I also found time to watch more home movies than I usually manage to do. So this has turned into a very, very long episode with seven films I want to fully review in this episode. And that does not include one of this week's cinematic releases, Flea. Now, in normal circumstances, a film I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend, like Flea, I would clip out the review I've already released of it that I did in my London Film Festival special and replay it to make sure you know that Flea is an excellent film. But this episode is already going to be far too long, so I urge you to see Flea. I think it should get a boatload of Oscars. It got the triple crown of being nominated in international feature, documentary feature, and animated feature. It's going to lose in all those categories, but I think it's outstanding. And if you can find it still, I do urge you to check out Flea. And I am going to release the other cinematic releases from last week that I I watched and want to review, even though It's unlikely you'll be able to find any of these films still in cinemas, which is frustrating because one of this week's cinematic releases I really, really liked. So that's a little annoying. And also a little annoying is that this week I realised that I didn't click the button and my episode 151, which included my reaction to the Oscar nominations, never actually got released. So. I did release it this week, even though it's a couple of weeks late and very late for the cinematic film that was in that episode, the anime film Bell. But anyway, that is now out and you do have a chance to listen to my Oscar nomination reactions as they happened. But yes, that added to my frustrations this week. But nevertheless, I do have a very long episode for you, although how relevant it still is, is somewhat up for debate. The cinematic films I want to talk about in this episode are the Channing Tatum starring and co-directed film 
Dog, the documentary The Real Charlie Chaplin, and the new film from Oscar-nominated Japanese director Ryusuke Hamaguchi, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, only four months after his last film Drive My Car was released into UK cinema. On Sky Cinema, watching through my skybox at home, we have Steven Soderbergh's new film Kimmy, and one of the few films I still have hanging over from 2021 that I did want to catch up on, the stop-motion animated feature Chuck Steele, Night of the Trampires. And we also have a couple of streaming-released films still hanging over from a Valentine's Day release on Amazon Prime, I Want You Back, and on Apple Plus TV, The Sky Is Everywhere. So, a very long show, and without further ado, let's just get on with today's reviews. Big Screen Dog is a new film that not only stars Channing Tatum, but also acts as his directorial debut. He is the credited co-director of this film, Dog, alongside Reed Carolyn, also making his feature-length directorial debut. But Reed Carolyn has not a long CV, but what is on his CV is writing the Magic Mike movies. And apparently there's a third Magic Mike on the way. And also it appears that Reed Carolyn and Channing Tatum are producing a musical based on Lady Macbeth, directed by John Macphail, the guy who did Anna and the Apocalypse. And that has made me wonder if I should delay my super-secret side project of doing that video essay about Lady Macbeth. But uh, yeah, we're going to have to see when and if that ever sees the light of day. But regardless, Reed Carolyn is mostly a writer of the Magic Mike movies and now is directing alongside Channing Tatum this story of a traumatised former army ranger who has also suffered a traumatic brain injury who is desperate to get back in the field in Iraq and wants to be signed off by his commanding officer in order to do so. But he's essentially been invalided out and his commanding officer knows that it's probably not a good idea to send him back to Iraq even though he has got medically cleared how legitimate this medical clearance was is up for debate. But the commanding officer says, okay, your very close friend in the Army Rangers has recently died. In fact, he's recently committed suicide. And his funeral is in a few days' time. So, if you transport the dog that your friend was the handler for to his funeral, in Arizona, and they're currently in Washington State. So this is a significant drive. But if you transport this dog to this funeral, maybe I will sign your papers and you can be reinstated and go back to war. Problem is that the dog is just as traumatised as Channing Tatum is. So 
it's constantly acting up, constantly attacking people with very little warning. This is a messed up dog to the extent that after attending this funeral, the dog is scheduled to be put down. So Channing Tatum and this dog have this days-long road trip from Washington State down through California and into Arizona, not particularly getting on and you know, hearts being warmed along the way, but Channing Tatum knows that this is essentially a doomed dog. So can these war veterans, one human, one canine, deal with their issues? I had kind of a weird experience watching this film, Dog. This was playing in the tiny, tiny little screen in the Odeon Cinema. And it was actually a a pretty full screening. But a significant portion of the audience for this screening that I was in were children. It was a 12A film, and I think, without really thinking about it, a lot of parents went along and said, oh, let's watch the Channing Tatum and Dog movie, and not really understanding what it was actually about, because this is definitively a story about war. It is definitively a story about trauma. It is a lot closer to a 15 than a PG. For example, there's a scene relatively early in the film where Channing Tatum finds himself on the verge of having a threesome and we see clothes being shared in preparation for this threesome happening and I was watching this right next door to a girl who was probably 12 or 13 and there were significantly younger children in there I think the youngest was probably somewhere around seven I was thinking well, this is not the film for a seven-year-old. But, I mean, this threesome doesn't progress any further because the dog starts barking outside. And this brings up one of the issues I had with this film. I mean, not just the fact that it is wildly inappropriate for children and has dramatic and extreme shifts in tone, The fact is that Channing Tatum and this dog just don't get on, and they don't get on for such a large chunk of the movie that by the time it does come around and, yeah, we're bonding, I I will rescue you from being put down. I just didn't believe it at all. This soldier, Channing Tatum, is just so desperate to get back to war because it's the only thing he knows despite the fact he has this traumatic brain injury, his eyesight's shot, he can't sleep, he has nightmares, all this kind of stuff. He shouldn't be going back to war, but it's the only thing he knows. And he's so desperate to do it, he just doesn't care about the dog at all. The very first stop he makes on this road trip going from Fort Lewis in Washington State to the Arizona desert where this funeral is going to be, the first stop is Channing Tatum goes to a gun range because you know he wants to get his eye in before potentially going back overseas. And stopping at a gun range with a traumatised dog, not a good plan. 
planning to have a threesome with two hot women he picks up in Portland and leaving the dog in the car outside. Not a good plan. He just doesn't care. It doesn't even occur to him to care about this dog. And that is a state of affairs which maintains itself for far too much of this film's running time. And this is a problematic character right from the start. I mean, he does have a traumatic brain injury. He shouldn't be going to war. He is having nightmares. The first time we see him on his own, he is in a cabin in the Montana wilderness chopping wood, and his ringtone is Ride of the Valkyries. That's a whole bunch of red flags in any average film, but this is supposed to be our hero. This is supposed to be our protagonist. And, you know, the cute animal bonding moments are few and far between, and most of the time it is clear that this is a damaged man transporting a damaged dog. And the sort of, like, cute animal hijinks are completely overwhelmed by the story about PTSD. And at the end of the day, that's not very fun. I mean, there are a couple of clever moments. I mean, there's a scene where Channing Tatum is trying to pick up girls at a bar in Portland, Oregon. And this is actually a very, very funny scene. I mean, this you know meathead military man trying to pick up women in the ultra-liberal environs of Portland, Oregon. I mean, there's actually a sign in the film, Keep Oregon Weird. Portland, Oregon is notoriously a very, very liberal city. I mean, that's why the kids' film Timmy Failure was set there. So this lunkhead trying to pick up chicks in a bar, and they're saying... do you realise you're part of the military-industrial complex? You you only went over there for the oil. And, hey, I just want to hook up. And that was actually a funny scene. And eventually, once he gives up and goes outside, he meets these two women outside who each have you know, cute little dogs and they connect over the dogs and have a... or try to have a threesome, which is eventually ruined by the dog. And another quite clever bit, although it's played out in a weird way, is that one of the sort of cute animal hijinks is that Channing Tatum tries to get himself into a swanky hotel. And the way he does this is he pretends to be blind. And the dog Lulu is his guide's dog. You know, interesting enough scam, I mean, clever way of trying to get a fancy hotel room for the night. But. In the lobby of this swanky hotel is a Muslim man wearing the full flowing robes and you know, white hat. And this instantly triggers the dog. You know, she has been trained to attack people who look like that. So she slips Channing Tatum's leash and attacks this Muslim man in this swanky hotel lobby. And you know, I think that was a, an interesting point. Channing Tatum has a speech, look, you know, I'm sorry. I know this was wrong, but you know, she was just doing what she was trained to do. I mean, it, it's just an unfortunate misunderstanding. And I, I think the point being made that simply looking like that was enough for this dog to attack 
was an interesting and reasonably clever point, but way, way underplayed. I mean, the racial politics of that situation, I think, are very much underplayed. This is a weird, weird film. Who is it for? I mean, for, you know, the mums who are just taking their sort of like seven to 12 year olds to see the cute dog movie. It's definitely not for them. People who want a genuine story about the traumas of war and the psychological impact on both humans and canines who have come back from war, it's got a little bit too much of a light touch for that either. So it fits somewhere uncomfortably in between these two things. And there are moments of genuine harrowing trauma and moments of cute animal hijinks and the shifts in tone swinging wildly from one to the other. It's difficult to get your head around. So, yeah, this is this is a bizarre film, and I'm not sure why and how it was made. I'm not sure who it's for. And, yeah, it's just odd. So, yeah, for me, Dog, which you might still be able to find in cinemas, is a confusing, relatively low, meh. Next up is the documentary The Real Charlie Chaplin. This is directed by the British directing team of Peter Middleton and James Spinney, whose previous feature-length documentary was the highly acclaimed documentary Notes on Blindness, which I must admit I never got around to, but was absolutely loved by certain sections of the critical community. In this case... Peter Middleton and James Spinney have got their hands on several audio recordings of Charlie Chaplin and people who knew Charlie Chaplin, several of his wives, one of his childhood friends who grew up with him in the poverty-stricken streets of Lambeth, and using these audio recordings and dramatic reconstructions with people lip-syncing to these audio recordings The story of Charlie Chaplin is laid bare in all its complicated and, in places, unsettling glory. And this is one of those films where, yes, it talks about the genius of Charlie Chaplin, I mean, one of the most gifted physical comedians, silent comedians of the early 20th century but also deals with the much more uncomfortable, much harsher aspects of Charlie Chaplin's personality. And doing the film in this way, of having these audio recordings being lip-synced by actors and having reconstructions of that, but never actually having Charlie Chaplin be lip-synced by an actor, where he's always out of focus if and when he's on screen. We always focused on the interviewers, but there's genuine archive pictures of these recordings taking place. So we see the real Charlie Chaplin, the the title of the film, not an actor playing him, but using these archive recordings in this way and having a voiceover performed by Paul Mackey, one of Doctor Who's recent assistants, but she has a very conversational, very wry approach 
to this voiceover. I mean, it's a very you know, knowing, very cheeky kind of approach. And it's a little bit odd, I have to say. I mean, it took me quite some time to get used to this voiceover from Pearl Mackey and how conversational it was. It does get into the darker aspects of Charlie Chaplin. The fact that he had a history of impregnating and on several occasions marrying teenage girls. He married four times and on three of those occasions his wives were still teenagers. One of his wives he first met when she was 12. And that, through modern eyes, is incredibly disturbing. I mean, one of these women who he impregnated when she was a teenager, her backstory is horrifying. I mean, she became you know, this tabloid sensation because you know, Hedda Hopper was so anti Charlie Chaplin, was convinced that he was a dirty communist in the era of McCarthy and just wanted rid of him. So Hedda Hopper, you know, the most influential gossip blogger in history or gossip columnist in those days, but she was incredibly influential and she wanted rid of Charlie Chaplin. So she destroyed this poor young woman's life to get rid of Charlie Chaplin and making simple statements against Hitler, making statements about freedom and fairness for all in the era of McCarthy was enough to get him blacklisted and eventually basically exiled. And yeah, just making simple statements about fairness and against Hitler, I mean, obviously in The Great Dictator, I mean, there's a brilliant, brilliant montage that Middleton and Spinney put together, which literally parallels the lives of Charlie Chaplin and Adolf Hitler. You know, one half of the screen is Charlie Chaplin, the other half of the screen is Adolf Hitler, and the parallels are striking. <laughs> so making statements against Hitler, I mean, in that famous final speech from The Great Dictator, but also going on speaking tours and talking about fairness and freedom for the Russian people or Soviet people, that was enough to get him surveilled by Hoover's FBI and lambasted by people like Hedda Hopper. And yeah, I mean, that is you know, an unfortunate aspect of Charlie Chaplin's history, the fact that he was essentially blackballed for making relatively innocuous statements. But also this fact that he had a thing for teenage girls, and that's just really, really disturbing through modern eyes. And we also have interviews with his children and also many, or a couple of his wives at least. And the character that comes across in these interviews is somebody who lived to perform, somebody who was a genius and, and considered himself a genius and was somewhat distant and remote from his family. But when there was a camera on him, he naturally started performing. So there is a lot of home movies of Charlie Chaplin and his family, but in almost all of them, in some way he is performing. 
there is a camera on me, therefore I shall perform. Even though these are supposed to be sort of like candid home movies, the natural, the real Charlie Chaplin does not appear in these home movies. And that's one of the major questions which gets asked in this film. Who was the real Charlie Chaplin? I mean, the title of this documentary is no mistake. Because one thing that the voiceover from Paul Mackey returns to again and again, one question that gets raised and never satisfactorily answered is where does Charlie Chaplin end and the tramp start? What is the line between the person and the character? And at a certain point, is there even a difference anymore? You know, Charlie Chaplin, even in his 70s or 80s, you know, when he's getting knighted, when he's getting an honorary Oscar, when after years of exile he is embraced once again by the Hollywood establishment, it's still all about the bowler hat and the cane. He's still the tramp. He's not the person. And that was something that contributed to his distant and remote family life. He was so, so concerned about not going back to the crippling, dire poverty he experienced when he was a child in Lambert. He was so determined, I will not do that again, that he became so driven to succeed, driven to be the great Charlie Chaplin, the great filmmaker. One crucial scene in one of his most famous films, City Lights, the pivotal moment in City Lights, one scene took over a year to film because he just wasn't satisfied. He kept not being satisfied with the results. So he spent over a year on one scene. He was that much of a perfectionist. And that too contributed to his distant and remote family life. And yeah, he's a very complex, very traumatised man with an uncomfortable attraction to teenage girls, but an unquestioned genius who maintained the silent tradition of comedy long past anybody else. I mean, when people like Laurel and Hardy and Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd had already started making talkies, Charlie Chaplin never did until The Great Dictator, a lot, lot later. I mean, he maintained the silent tradition long past the point it was practical. And he was reasonably successful at it. So, yeah, I think Jean Dujardin in The Artist has a lot of Charlie Chaplin in him. But yeah, this controlling perfectionist who was remote from the people around him and determined to succeed at the detriment of everything else, including some very, very uncomfortable interactions with women and his children. I mean, he doesn't come across as a particularly nice person in this documentary, albeit an unquestioned genius of comedy. So, yeah, in all the diverse and strange ways that you can describe Charlie Chaplin, this documentary goes through it. And it's very, very well put together. This is already available to purchase on streaming platforms at home. No doubt it will be available to rent eventually. 
in america i believe it's on the showtime network so you'll probably be able to find it there but yeah the real charlie chaplin is a very intense and occasionally uncomfortable documentary about an unqualified genius and i do basically recommend it so for me the real charlie chaplin is a reasonably high meh And the last cinematic film I want to talk about is Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. The latest film from Oscar-nominated director Ryusuke Hamaguchi. I don't know if it was because of delays due to the pandemic or whether he's just really, really prolific. But at this year's London Film Festival, there were two films by Ryusuke Hamaguchi. Drive My Car, and this film, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. Drive My Car rather surprisingly got a Best Picture nomination, as well as the International Feature nomination it was expected to get, and Ryusuke Hamaguchi got nominated personally for Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay for Drive My Car. Drive My Car is definitely going to win the International Feature Oscar, and it's going to deserve it, so I did like Drive My Car. But only four months after Drive My Car was released in Japan, Ryusuke Hamaguchi's next film, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, came out, and the same thing has maintained here in the UK. Four months after Drive My Car got a wide cinematic release, here we are with Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. So in the calendar year of 2021, there were these two films. And I'm pretty sure both of them were eligible for the same international feature Oscar cycle. So yeah, Drive My Car is one that everybody's been praising, but Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy could possibly be overlooked, and I don't think it should be. Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy is an anthology movie telling three separate stories of romance and coincidence and chance and regret. All of them are arguably romantic stories, but all of them heavily depend on coincidence and misunderstanding and ironic mistakes. And also a heavy dose of regret. It takes the form of three vignettes. The first vignette is two women having a conversation together. One of them's a model. One of them is some kind of producer, some kind of executive in charge of this photo shoot. They're clearly best friends. And in the car together, coming back from a photo shoot they have a conversation and the executive starts talking about this amazing date she had last night this amazing man she spent 15 hours with there's a real genuine bond a genuine connection i mean he's so heartbroken his last girlfriend dumped him after cheating on him i mean how horrible was that and yet here is this new love that is here and this conversation goes on for a long time between these two women. And once the executive gets out of the car, the model asks the driver to turn around 
and goes and finds a man in a office late at night, I mean, you know, hard-working man, and it becomes apparent that this model, unbeknownst to her best friend, is the woman who dumped and broke the heart of the man she's just spent this amazing day with. So this turns into a really weird love triangle. In the second story, a mature student who is basically a frustrated housewife with a kid is having a sexual relationship with one of her classmates, you know, this young man who is still attracted to this, you know, boring old woman as as far as she's concerned. And she is persuaded by her younger lover to try and seduce one of their mutual professors. Because this boy has a grudge against this professor, and if we can get him caught up in a sex scandal, he will lose his job and I can resume my glittering student career. So this frustrated housewife decides, well, why not? and tries to seduce this professor, and it does not go how you expect. And in the third vignette, we have a woman who is going back to her high school reunion, her 20-year high school reunion. She is a woman with short hair and Doc Martens, who is clearly looking for one of her female classmates, and is disappointed when she doesn't show up to the reunion. But as she is going into the train station in Sendai in the middle of Japan, going back to her home in Tokyo, as she's going up the escalators, coming down the escalators, is the object of her affections. This completely chance coincidence meeting, these two women talking about their high school days, trying to reconnect despite the long period of time that has gone past and also the fact that this is set in a parallel world future where a computer virus happened and basically nobody uses computers anymore because nothing you write on a computer is safe anymore it will just randomly get sent out to the world if you write something on a computer so nobody writes on computers anymore and since this tomboyish woman used to work in IT, she's also a loose end, which you know contributes to her wanting to reconnect with her high school crush. But as these two women start having this conversation together, it emerges that a misunderstanding has taken place, and that too does not go in the directions you expect. So... As I said, everybody will be talking about Ryusuke Hamaguchi in connection to Drive My Car. It is going to win the International Feature Oscar. I mean, the fact that it has a Best Picture nomination and Ryusuke Hamaguchi has been nominated for Best Director and Ryusuke Hamaguchi, alongside his co-writer Takamasa Oe, has also been nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. So... There is no question that Drive My Car will win the International Feature Oscar. I mean, my personal choice would be Flea, the (laughs) awesome animated documentary I talked about earlier, but a very close second would be Drive My Car. It will be a worthy winner when it does win that International Feature Oscar. 
But I like Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy better. I think this is an outstanding film. The key scene in Drive My Car, the scene which really sticks in the mind after you've finished watching that three-hour film, is a conversation which takes place in the back of you know, the titular car. I mean, this theatre director is being driven around and he is having a long conversation with his leading man in this production of Uncle Vanya he's pushing on. But this young man almost certainly had an affair with the lead actor's wife. So they're having this long, long conversation, the subtext of which is, we both slept with the same woman, we both loved the same woman, but we are absolutely not going to say that out loud. And it's a brilliant, brilliant conversation. It's a long conversation. It's the centrepiece of the entire film. And it's brilliant. What Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy does is have similar conversations, but just four or five of them, and all of them are outstanding. I mean, indeed, the first one takes place in the back of a car. As this model, Katone Furukawa, is having a conversation with her best friend, Hyunri, and gradually realising, oh shit, this guy that my best friend is gushing about, he's my ex. And the conversation is outstanding. And then the conversation between Kotone Furukawa and the man, Ayumu Nakajima, that too is outstanding. And then all three of them meet up in a cafe, and that too is outstanding. All these conversations are really deep, really dense, talking about romance and eroticism and love and connection and friendship and moral. Katone Furukawa freely admits, yes, I did cheat on you two years ago and you dumped me because of it, but I have somewhat of a justification for it, somewhat of a legitimate reason for it. Is that morally right? Probably not, but yeah, it's a conversation. And then we have the second vignette where this housewife who has gone back to school played by Katsuki Mori, is persuaded and, and relatively easily persuaded to try and seduce this professor that her young lover, Shumukai, has. And this professor, Kyoko Shibukawa, has issues. I mean, he has a legitimate complaint against his young student, Shumukai. Shumukai thought he could get away with something and Kyoko Shibukawa didn't let him. I mean, Kyoko Shibukawa is in the right, and yet he is on the receiving end of this attempted seduction by Katsuki Mori. But that scene, that conversation, does not go in the places you expect. It turns from an attempted seduction into almost a therapy session where each of these two somewhat lonely people, this isolated bachelor professor and his mature student. They each have conversations, they each have discussions about their attitude to romance, to connection, to sex. And it almost turns into a therapy session. And 
even though throughout the majority of this conversation, Katsuki Mori is trying to seduce this guy, at first because her younger lover wants it, but gradually you kind of get the impression that Katsuki Mori actually I would kind of like to sleep with this guy, and I would actively am trying to seduce him for myself, not just for my younger lover. But it becomes much more complex than that. It, it reaches a level of profundity, a level of connection, which you just don't anticipate it happening. The way it gradually morphs into something completely different and connecting, these two people connecting on a much, much deeper, much more profound level than the surface. I would kind of like to fuck you. That's the text. The subtext is so much more rich and it's amazing. And it's just this long conversation. The majority of this middle vignette is just this one conversation between these two people and the ways it ebbs and flows, the twists it takes, the subject matter it encompasses by the end of it is just breathtaking. I mean, that conversation is so, so good. But it's probably beaten by the conversation in the last vignette, where this heavily queer-coded woman, Fusako Urabe, is going to her high school reunion, and after being disappointed that her crush didn't show up, she sees this woman, Aoba Kawaii, coming down the escalator as she's going up and they connect with each other and you know yes i would kind of like to have a conversation with you but i'm actually expecting a parcel at home so yeah would you mind following me home we can continue this conversation the fact of the parcel is perhaps one of the reasons why this last vignette takes place in a world where people no longer use computers because your know, personal information is just going to be randomly released to the world. But I think the main reason is the fact that it is not possible for Fusako Arabe to cyberstalk her ex, the girlfriend she had uh, in high school. You would naturally go to Facebook or some other social media platform and try and find your ex-girlfriend, but that is no longer possible. And connecting on these people and the reason that... Aoba Kawaii invites this woman home and she's expecting a Blu-ray delivery for her son because you know streaming platforms no longer work so everybody's gone back to Blu-rays. So yes, there are reasons for this last vignette to take place in a parallel world where nobody uses computers, but I think the benefits of that are wildly outweighed by the negatives of putting this weird extra layer on this final vignette. I mean, that's the one thing I would have changed. I think you, you could have found other ways around those problems. So I don't like the parallel world aspect of this final vignette. But apart from that, the conversation is outstanding. I mean, this reconnecting of two people after roughly 20 years where they haven't seen each other not quite being brave enough to say what you what the, the clear subtext is. I mean, as Fusako Arabe was not brave enough to fully talk about her feelings when they were both in high school, 
it's still the situation now. And then a moment happens and everything changes. All the preconceptions that these characters have had, all the preconceptions that we as an audience have had, changes. And yet the conversation continues. It reaches a point where, oh shit, a terrible mistake has been made. We need to stop this. But the conversation continues regardless. And it continues being absolutely riveting and absolutely fascinating. The emotional turmoil that both of these characters are in, and it's different emotional turmoil than they as characters and we as an audience think it is at the beginning of the vignette, but it is definitely, definitely there. There is so much emotional turmoil between these two people. There is so much unsaid. This is an opportunity, I mean, a weird opportunity, but an opportunity to say the things which are unsaid and remain unsaid, remain in your deepest heart of hearts. These are the things which you are thinking about, and this might be the only chance you will ever, ever get to say them, even though it probably shouldn't be happening. But, I mean, these deep conversations going in all these unexpected directions I mean, the, these seconds two vignettes end nowhere near where I expected them to end up. I mean, it, it's very heavily dependent on chance, on randomness, on ironic mistakes. I mean, in the middle section, Katsuki Mori's uh, daughter, I think, or child, starts saying the name of the Japanese equivalent of DHL at exactly the wrong point, and because she was chanting the name of the parcel delivery company that's just delivered a parcel, a mistake is made, and that one little moment of her daughter saying the wrong word at the wrong time, everything changes. And in the final thing, I mean, this queer-coded woman for Sako Arabe desperately wanting to see her high school girlfriend makes a mistake and it goes in completely different directions than you expect it going. This is very much about randomness and chance and coincidence. I mean, all of these stories in some degree or another depend on coincidence and really, really unlikely coincidences. But just because something is incredibly unlikely doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I mean, like a best friend happening to hook up with the guy you cheated on two years ago. Unlikely, but it does happen. The name of a parcel delivery company being remarkably close to somebody else's name does happen. The fact that you randomly see somebody as you are about to leave your hometown forever, unlikely, but it does happen. And yeah, it's got so much stuff about randomness and chance and coincidence and also heavy, heavy doses of regret. There are so many characters in these three stories who regret their actions in the past and yet couldn't help themselves. The script of this is just masterful. I've said many times on this podcast that I am a huge fan of you know, walking and talking films, the kind of films where it's just essentially two people talking to each other. I mean, obviously, Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy, South Side With You, The Two Popes, The End of the Tour, 
all different kinds of films, which is largely about conversation. And here it's an entire film made up of several conversations, several lengthy conversations. Some of the shots, which is just two people talking, must be sort of five, six, seven minutes long. And it's gripping, it's compelling, it's amazing. The script is profound, it's brilliant, it's thought provoking. The stories are clever and intricate and interesting. I just cannot praise this film enough. I did like Drive My Car, but Ryusuke Hamaguchi's latest film, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, I absolutely love. I really regret that this podcast is released so late that you almost certainly won't be able to see this in the cinema. But however you get to see it, I urge you to seek out this film. I absolutely loved it. It's probably going to be one of my top 10 films of the year. And for me, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy is a hearty, unqualified yay. Home movies. Kimmy is the latest film from Steven Soderbergh. A full nine years after the last time he announced he was retiring from making films. I think what Steven Soderbergh really meant was he was retiring from making films within the Hollywood system and kowtowing to all the suits and backroom people who get in between a filmmaker and the film screen. He's now going to do it on exactly his terms. Like three years ago, he made a film for Netflix, the underappreciated and underseen High Flying Bird, which I thought was excellent. And since then, he's basically been making films for HBO Max. He did Let Them All Talk with Meryl Streep, which is a nice little film, but to the best of my knowledge, still has not been legally released here in the UK. He then made No Sudden Move for HBO Max, which was an overly ambitious mob movie from the 1920s with a bizarre direction it was going in. And now the third film in a row he's made for HBO Max is this film Kimmy, which similarly to no Sudden Move, has now been released onto Sky Cinema here in the UK. Having said all that, it looks like Steven Soderbergh's next project is going to be the third Magic Mike movie I mentioned a bit earlier. It looks like Steven Soderbergh is back to direct the third Magic Mike movie after bowing out for the second one. But uh, yeah, we're going to have to see how that one goes. But regardless, there is a new Steven Soderbergh film, which here in the UK is available through Sky Cinema. And it stars Zoe Kravitz as a tech worker living in Seattle. She works for the Amygdala Corporation, whose major product is Kimmy. A virtual assistant along the same lines as something like Alexa or Siri. But the selling point of Kimmy is that 
not only are there automated responses when you say, hey, Kimmy, I want some kitchen towel. When the algorithm doesn't understand or gets things wrong, a query is put in and a real-life human person listens to the request and figures out what's going on. So the selling point of Kimmy is that there is always a human listening. The world is a scary place, and to have this as part of your plot and to make out like it's a good thing? Yeah. Wouldn't you know it, one of the queries that Angela, played by Zoe Kravitz, gets sounds like it might be an assault. A violent, possibly sexual assault. And when Zoe Kravitz tries to report this, she gets herself involved in a widespread conspiracy because, of course, the company that makes these Kimmy devices is just about to go public and make the owners of this company unbelievably wealthy. So when she tries to report this, she finds herself being tracked down by vicious killers, being gaslit by the people who she works for, and all the time trying to get the truth out there. And all of this is made much, much more complicated by the fact that Zoe Kravitz is agoraphobic and hasn't been out of her apartment for quite some time. And that was even before the COVID pandemic, which is a part of this film, but obviously made things a thousand times worse. The only human interaction she has is some flirtation and the occasional hookup with a lawyer who lives in the building opposite her, and they started you know, waving at each other during the pandemic, and now it's reached the point that every now and again, and entirely on Zoe Kravitz's terms, this guy Byron Bowers occasionally comes over and they have sex, but that's about as far as her face-to-face human interactions goes. She cannot leave the building, and more often than not, the only conversation she has is with a Romanian hacker friend played by Alex Dobrenko. So, with various factors desperately trying to get what she knows and possibly even get rid of her, can Zoe Kravitz survive and can she actually get this evidence of a crime? to the right people who can actually do something about it. I think there are a lot of things that this film Kimmy gets right. I think the thriller elements are well executed, if a little basic. The script for this film was actually written by David Kapp, one of Hollywood's great screenwriters, who, amongst other things, is the credited writer of Jurassic Park, and one of the credited writers of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, and has also done some smaller, more indie thrillers, like 
the Joseph Gordon-Levitt film Premium Rush, which David Kep also directed, and is rather good, I thought. So David Kep is a talented writer, and he knows how to make this taut, tight little thriller. Yes, it goes a little bit along rails. I mean, it's the kind of thing we've seen so many times before. More than anything, this turns into a variation on Brian De Palma's film, Blowout, in which John Travolta is a film audio engineer who accidentally records the sound that is evidence of an assassination taking place. I think there's also a little bit of Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation, which is a nice little thriller about surveillance. And it's, you know, the man, or in this case, the woman, who knows too much. I mean, it's kind of a Hitchcockian thing. I mean, I mean Brian De Palma was ripping off Hitchcock all his career. So, yeah, Blowout is another one of those Hitchcockian-type things. And actually, Blowout is an okay film. It's a decent little film. The final scene of Blowout is one of the most shocking and heartbreaking ideas that I think a film has ever left you with. I mean, the tragedy of that moment is a significant factor in the way that film goes. So yeah, Blowout's a decent film. And Kimmy, I think, is more or less a decent film. Because I think making your protagonist an agoraphobic is an unexpected, but when you think about it, a reasonably legitimate response to COVID. I mean, this is definitely a film set in the almost post-COVID world. And seeing Zoe Kravitz deal with her situation, at the beginning of the film, I mean, she's been texting with the guy across the street from her, Byron Bowers. And you're, you're flirting back and forth and you're waving at each other through windows. And she suggests, why don't I meet you by the food truck, which is outside our building every day? I mean, at the time, I mean, this is the start of the film. So you think, okay, this will be a normal thing. But then Zoe Kravitz goes to the shower and absolutely scrubs herself before she even contemplates leaving the house and then getting to the door you realize that this door is locked from the inside and she needs a key to get out of her apartment and eventually she can't do it it's i think a common trope for a lot of people in the modern day to say i you know i'm a little ocd i'm a little particular about the things i do but this is a portrayal of somebody who actually has severe OCD and germophobia. And Zoe Kravitz, I think, plays it very well. I mean, this is somebody whose life has been drastically affected by some traumatic stuff which has happened to her in her past. And now she just cannot leave her apartment. And it's just as well. She's got a remote job as this tech oversight person you know listening to these complaints in this kimmy device and figuring out what's going on and i think her portrayal of it is very well done and eventually of course she does need to leave the apartment because you know there are people now after her and the information she has 
and she wants to take this information to her bosses, you know, the Amygdala Corporation. And you just know that things are not as they seem and she's going to be dismissed and gaslit. So she then tries to take it to the FBI office, the local FBI office in Seattle. But she does leave the apartment. And I did like the way that Steven Soderbergh responded to this very traumatised, very agoraphobic character leaving her apartment for the first time in what must be two or three years. Zoe Kravitz has a very particular gait, a very particular way of walking, a very hunched, very shuffling steps, always with her arms rigidly by her side. And the filmmaking changes significantly as well. The sound gets very loud, very obtrusive. When we see Zoe Kravitz's head moving, her vision is constantly going in and out of focus. I think it's a decent representation of somebody very, very troubled going on the streets for the first time in years. I think it is a reasonably sensitive portrayal of that kind of experience. Somebody who is agoraphobic and has been forced to leave her apartment. And I was duly impressed. But by the end of the film, it just turns into a thriller. It just turns into a conspiracy thriller. There are people coming. There's this one particular MacGuffin, which Zoe Kravitz has and that everybody wants. And they're coming to her apartment. They're probably going to kill her. How is she going to get out of it? And it's very, very basic, very, very standard stuff. And by that point, her agoraphobia, I don't think, is dealt with particularly strongly. There's a brief line of dialogue and you know, hints here and there elsewhere about the specific reason, the trigger for her agoraphobia. And it's one of those situations where they say in a line of dialogue, oh, this happened to her in the past. And it's never fully explained. And that's such a big thing that a little bit more exposition, I think, would have been necessary. But no, instead, we just have the thriller aspects of you know, people with guns coming into her apartment. And you know, the diehard aspects of this are well done. I mean, there's some Chekhov's guns which are laid out in the very, very opening scenes of the film. So you know the layout of the building, you know what's going on in the apartments around her, you know what the relationship is between Zoe Kravitz and the people who live around her. So the setup and payoff of this story is very well done. You know, the thriller aspects are good, but I don't think the agoraphobia aspects are consistently good by the end of this film. Because not only do we not have, in my opinion, enough information about the beginning of the agoraphobia, by the end of the film, by the very, very end of the film, you can say that Zoe Kravitz has been quote-unquote fixed. Now, giving the audience a happy ending, giving the audience a satisfying ending, I'm okay with. Uh, And... You can see through the actions that Zoe Kravitz has to take, the things she needs to do to protect herself and the information that she has, the crime she wants to uncover, the things she has had to do 
you can easily see eventually this might lead to some form of overcoming of her issues. But it just skips right to the end. I mean, literally, I mean, there's a little coda right at the end, and there are actions that Zoe Kroitz takes in this final scene, which she couldn't possibly have taken at the beginning of the film, and probably not in the middle of the film either. Yet she does this, and that's all the information we get. So a little bit more build up to that dramatic happy ending for this clearly traumatized, clearly agoraphobic person would have been nice. So I don't think the beginning or the end of her agoraphobia is dealt with sensitively enough, but there are aspects of the portrayal of the agoraphobia which I think are very well handled. So a mixed bag, but really this is trying to be a conspiracy thriller and it succeeds at being a conspiracy thriller. I think it fudges some of the mental health aspects a little bit, so I can't fully get on board with it, but this is a decent film. Kimmy is available on HBO Max in the States, and over here it's available through Sky Cinema, and for me, it's a solid, entertaining enough meh. I've basically given up trying to watch 2021 films now. I've already released my top 10 films of 2021. I'm working diligently on my Oscar preview show and my personal raw footage awards. So I had to draw a line somewhere and I've basically stopped watching any 2021 films. One exception to this was a film I watched through streaming this week, the British independent stop-motion animated film Chuck Steele, Night of the Trampires. This is a film that I wanted to watch for a couple of reasons. One, because I think it's the type of small independent British film which needs support. And two, I thought there was a non-zero chance that this was one of the best animated films released in the UK during 2021. So to make absolutely sure before I locked down my personal raw footage awards for best animated feature, I did want to watch this film, Chuck Steele, Night of the Trampires, which is written and directed by a guy called Mike Mort, who also voices the lead character in this film, Chuck Steele who in the 90s did the irreverent claymation TV show Gogs, and has also over the years done a few episodes of Shaun the Sheep for television. But he started out making a short for this character, Chuck Steele, which now has been expanded into a feature-length stop-motion animated film. Chuck Steele, as voiced by Mike Mort, is a no-nonsense, maverick, seat-of-your-pants detective working in 1985 Los Angeles. He shoots first, asks questions later, grabs the girl, kisses the girl, punches anybody who tries to become his partner. His partners die at an alarming rate and his partners include a Swedish female 
from an exchange program and a trained chimpanzee. He's mourning the loss of his wife to some ninja assassins in an extensive sequence at the beginning of the film where his wife is taken from him by ninja assassins. His captain, every five minutes, saying, Oh, give me your gun and your badge. You're too dangerous to be out there, but God damn it, you're the best cop I've got. I mean, this is every 1980s badass cinema cliche you have ever seen, and that's what it's designed to be. This is a dissection and examination of that kind of badass cinema. Films like Tango and Cash or Cobra or. Lethal Weapon, even. That kind of cop movie where you just fire guns at everything and hope for the best. And that's what Chuck Steele is designed to be. But in this particular case, he's a little bit out of his element because the city starts being attacked by trampires. Vampires who have devolved so badly that they are now tramps and are attracted to the completely inebriated and are after the cheap alcohol in the bloodstream just as much as the blood itself. But there is now a swarm of these trampires on the streets of Los Angeles, so can Chuck Steele with his blonde quiff and square jaw survive the night and make sure that these trampires are no longer a threat to humanity with his captain jack shit and the mysterious man abraham van rental at his side can the curse of the trampires be overcome maybe not when the police psychologist voiced by jennifer saunders of all people dr Alex Kular is working her magic and making the cops more sensitive than maybe they need to be. One thing that constantly came to mind when I was watching Chuck Steele Night of the Trampires is Poe's Law. Now, this is specifically related to internet comments where the law states that without context, if you try and parody extremist views, it is all too easy for people to misread it and take you seriously. And that, I think, is kind of what has happened here with Chuck Steele, Knight of the Trampires. I think what Mike Mort is trying to do as both the writer and director of this film is to satirise this kind of hyper-masculine, hyper-violent, badass cinema of the 1980s and compare it to the more sensitive approach of the 21st century. I mean, in one of the early scenes, I mean, this Captain Jack shit, you know, the black guy with a big moustache, we see that he's wearing high heels. And I was thinking, okay, that's an interesting angle. Where are we going with this? And it turns out that this police psychologist, Dr. 
a Kular, voiced by Jennifer Saunders, has been working with the police departments and opening up their sensitivity. So Jack Shit has embraced his feminine side, and by the end of the film, he's a full transvestite. And the sensitivities of the other people, the other cops around, Chuck Steele, are out there as well. So, I mean, comparing the sensitivities of modern attitudes to the attitudes of the 1980s is a possibility for satire, but the way it is presented in this film, the way it comes across is these pansy boys who have now embraced their emotions and embraced their feminine side are now so useless that only this gun-toting, violent psychopath, basically, Chuck Steele, can possibly save the day. And that just isn't fun. That isn't good. In trying, and I believe failing, to satirise these badass cinema attitudes of the 1980s, Mike Mort has fallen woefully short. Yes, there is a sequence where Chuck Steele is outright called out for his misogyny, but it comes very late in the film, and it's one character who calls him that, and he goes on you know, spraying bullets everywhere and setting fire to stuff and randomly killing people and having gross-out, overly sexualised moments. I mean, there's a gag involving the testicles of a pig. I can't believe we actually got there, but there is a gag involving the testicles of a pig, which is completely unnecessary. Everything is hyper-violent, hyper-sexualised, hyper-misogynist, and not enough is done to undercut those attitudes. So it ends up just being an example of those attitudes and glorying in and embracing those attitudes of the hyper-violent, hyper-masculine 80s. And even the portrayal of this character, Jack Shit, it's never established how okay people are now going to be with his feminine side, with his transvestite side, now that you know, the threat of the trampires has been dealt with. I would personally have liked an indication one way or another if Jack Shit is going to continue with exploring his feminine side or not. I mean, there is a scene in the big climactic battle with the Trampires where he rips off the blonde wig he's been wearing for the final scene and starts shooting people. But is that you know, a reversion to what he was before? You know, is he now going to be hiding, once again, his feelings in order to fuck shit up? We don't know, and we're not told. And that, I think, is a huge point to be made. There's also an unhealthy dose of fat shaming in this film, which I think was completely unnecessary. The Japanese stereotypes in this opening scene where Chuck Steele's wife is taken away by a stone-faced Japanese Yakuza type. I mean, that's some very, very culturally insensitive stuff there, which, again, I think was intended to make a point about this kind of 1980s cinema, but ends up just being racist. 
And that's what this entire film is. It is trying to make a point. It is trying to be funny about these 1980s action movie, cop movie attitudes. But it ends up just being that. And it's not fun. There is a razor-thin line between satire and just doing that thing. And, in my opinion, Chuck Steele, Knight of the Trampers, doesn't even come close to satire. It's just hyper-masculine, hyper-misogynist, hyper-violent, and we're supposed to embrace that. Well, I say no. Yes, it is a small independent British film which probably does need support, but I don't think it deserves support. I did not enjoy this. I do not recommend it. And for me, the animated feature Chuck Steele, Night of the Trampires, available through streaming platforms, is a nay. Next up, we have the film Still Left Over from Valentine's Day, released onto Amazon Prime Video. I want you back. It is directed by Jason Orley, who's done quite a bit of television comedy and made one feature film in the past, the Pete Davidson starring film Big Time Adolescence, which got reasonably good reviews. But it's written by Isaac Aptaker and Elizabeth Berger, who have a long and storied career making television comedies and have one feature film in their past as writers, the excellent queer John Hughes-style movie Love, Simon, which I really appreciated, and I love the fact that that was a mainstream release. So, good writers and a reasonably experienced director making this anti-rom-com released just in time for Valentine's Day. Charlie Day and Jenny Slate are living in, I think, Atlanta, Georgia, and both have just been dumped. Jenny Slate's hunky fitness instructor partner, Scott Eastwood, has left her for the girl who runs the gourmet pie shop round the corner, Clark Bacco. And Charlie Day's long-term girlfriend, Gina Rodriguez, has decided, I'm bored, I'm stagnant, I wanted to be a big actress, a Shakespearean thespian, but I've ended up as a middle school English teacher. I need some excitement in my life. So Gina Rodriguez, after seven years with Charlie Day, has gone off with the middle school drama teacher, Manny Jacinto, who has given up his career as an experimental theatre director in New York and is now a middle school drama teacher in Georgia. So both of these people have been broken up with, and simultaneously they both end up crying in the same stairwell because they don't know each other, but they happen to work in the same building. Directionless Jenny Slate is the receptionist for an orthodontist, and Charlie Day is miserable in his job as a VP for a retirement home company. But they're in the same building in, I think, Atlanta, possibly Savannah, but somewhere in Georgia. 
you know, tax breaks and all that kind of stuff. So commiserating with each other and crying in their stairwell, they decide to support each other through this. And the reasonably sensible idea, when you get drunk and decide you want to phone your ex, why don't you phone me instead? And this happens enough that they start hanging out together and drinking together. And whilst drunk, the idea comes up, well, why don't we just break up their relationships? So Jenny Slate tries to seduce Gina Rodriguez's new partner, Manny Jacinto, away from her. And Charlie Day tries to befriend Scott Eastwood and subtly try and make him work out that, oh, Jenny Slate's the one I love, not this glamorous pie shop girl, Clark Bacco. So they continue to try and break up their friends, ex-partners' new relationships and hang out together. And of course, romantic sparks aren't going to start flying between these two people as they continue to hang out together in the ostensible goal to break up these new relationships so they can get back with their exes. It's not too much of an anti-rom-com. I mean, you know basically where this film is going. But I think this film actually works surprisingly well because what Charlie Day and Jenny Slate develop is a believable and genuine friendship. They like hanging out together. They have you know, similar sensibilities. They have similar ideas. They're you know, similarly directionless. I mean, Jenny Slate doesn't know what she's doing with her life. She didn't quite finish university for, as we learn later, reasonably understandable reasons. So she's just doing this dead-end receptionist job without really knowing where her life is going. Charlie Day hates his job, but he's stagnant, he's comfortable. I mean, Gina Rodriguez, as she is breaking up with Charlie Day, says, you've become complacent, which I think was uh, a very sharp way of describing it. So they start hanging out together, and you gradually see the friendship develop between these two people. And there's you know, funny moments along the way. There's one point where Jenny Slate's version of the walk of shame is to wake up in a bed next to an open box of cinnamon crunch toast breakfast cereal. And Jenny Slate looks over to the other side of the bed, sees the you know, spilled box of cereal and says, oh no, not again. And then her flatmate says, hang on, is that cinnamon toast crunch in your hair? And Jenny Slate you know, gets out and says, oh yes it is. And then eats it. I mean, this is a nice little moment that you see. And without trying, they support each other through each other's issues. I mean, Charlie Day ended up working at this retirement home company because his dream was to create a new generation of comfortable, homely, nice retirement homes rather than the corporate culture he's working in, which is basically openly planning to starve its residents. He wanted to make a different kind of retirement home. And when 
Charlie Day admits this to Jenny Slate. Jenny Slate immediately says, that's a great idea. Why don't you do that? Uh, and that is something that Gina Rodriguez, Charlie Day's ex, never did. She always thought it was a stupid idea to you know, risk that much to start your own business, start your own retirement home. So Charlie Day stagnated and stagnated to the point that Gina Rodriguez felt trapped and wanted to go off with this absurdly pretentious middle school drama teacher played by Manny Jacinta. I mean, this is the kind of guy who you've seen, you know, he's the epitome of somebody who would do experimental theatre in New York, but now he's trying to do it with 12-year-olds. And, yeah, it's absurd to see how easy he makes that and yeah one of the plot points which i think is a little hard to get past is the way that jenny slate tries to seduce manny jacinto is that she sees a post on social media saying hey we need volunteers to help with our production of little shop of horrors which is an interesting musical to do for a bunch of 12 year olds but anyway jenny slate shows up i mean she admits that, no, I don't have any kids here, and yet she just hangs out with all these kids and with Manny Jacinto and Gina Rodriguez. So, yeah, that was a little bit too easy that Jenny Slate, with very little checking, is allowed to hang out with all these 12- and 13-year-olds. But anyway, that's what happened. And the attempts of Jenny Slate to seduce Manny Jacinto are very funny. The attempts of Charlie Day to become a friend of Scott Eastwood and start working his magic on Scott Eastwood and say, you know, you need to break up with Clark Bacco. That's interesting. I mean, I like the fact that it's decided that Jenny Slate can try and seduce Manny Jacinto, but Charlie Day, there's no point in him trying to seduce Clark Bacco because he's just not good enough. And I like that aspect of the film. But he does start hanging out a lot with Scott Eastwood. And there too, there develops what seems to be a genuine friendship. And I think as dark as this potentially could have been, and in places kind of is, what really stands out in I Want You Back is the fact that the friendship that these people have is genuine. It feels true. It feels right. You absolutely believe that one of the first times that Jenny Slate and Charlie Day hang out, they go to a karaoke bar and start screaming out Alanis Morissette's You Ought to Know, which is a very appropriate song for their situation. They are genuinely nice people. I mean, yes, they are nice people who plan to break up their ex partner's new relationships but they're basically decent people. And that's what comes across in this film. And the basis of friendship is enough that by the time it does cross the line and they realise, oh, actually, why am I trying to get back with my ex? You know, this new relationship, this new friendship, is more satisfying than anything I had with my ex. By the time they realise that, and of course it's too late, you actually believe it, you actually buy it. And I really enjoyed this film. I mean, yes, it has most of the romantic comedy tropes. 
it's a darker, slightly more subversive version of the romantic comedy tropes than we're used to, but it's no worse for that. And I actually really enjoyed this film. So for me, of the films released around Valentine's Day this year that I've seen so far, so far the ones that top the list are the Netflix Korean film Love and Leashes from last week, and this one on Amazon Prime Video, I Want You Back, which I did really enjoy, and for me, is a yay. And then we come to The Sky Is Everywhere, also released around Valentine's Day, but this is a mildly tragic YA novel adaptation, that kind of combination of romance and doomed love and death, which is so popular amongst a certain demographic of YA novel readers. This book, The Sky Is Everywhere, was originally written by Jandy Nelson, who also writes the screenplay, adapting her own book. But it has been directed by Josephine Decker. Now, I would have skipped over this and glossed over it given the basic premise of this, you know, YA, mildly tragic novel. But the fact that Josephine Decker was the director did make me prick up my ears, and I did check it out when it was released onto Apple Plus TV, and I discovered that it actually existed. Josephine Decker is a very, very interesting filmmaker. She has boatloads of indie cred for her very art house films like Butter on the Latch, Thou Wast Mild and Lovely, and her indie cinema breakout film Madeline's Madeline. And of the indie success and festival success of Madeline's Madeline, she got a somewhat bigger prestige picture, Shirley, with Elizabeth Moss doing a fictionalised biopic of the renowned horror author Shirley Jackson, who wrote The Lottery, amongst other things. I mean, one of the most disturbing short stories in history. But yeah, I kind of liked Shirley. I think Elizabeth Moss was excellent in it, but the fictionalised aspects of that story didn't sit very well with me. But it was an interesting film. And now Josephine Decker has taken the critical success of Shirley and decided to do this YA novel adaptation. Why? I was very, very curious. So I did decide to watch The Sky Is Everywhere, which stars Grace Kaufman as a teenage girl who lives in the Green Triangle in the north of California, in Humboldt County, which I happen to know is one of the biggest marijuana-growing areas in the world, when it was still illegal, and I I guess now that it's kind of legal, it's sort of more out in the open. But Humboldt County is part of the Green Triangle in the far north of California, So, Grace Kaufman is growing up basically in the middle of the woods. But she has suffered recently a terrible tragedy. Her beloved older sister, 
Havana Rose Liu, has recently died. She was performing on stage and she dropped dead of a heart arrhythmia, the same genetic condition that took away her mother. So Grace Kaufman is drowning in grief, even though she is surrounded by these beautiful redwood forests, and living with her grandmother, Cherry Jones, and her mildly inappropriate, mildly stoner uncle, Jason Siegel. Grace Kaufman is a very, very talented clarinetist, to the extent that she is expected to audition and more than likely get into Juilliard, you know, the most prestigious music school in America. But she's drowning in grief, so she basically has decided, no, I'm not going to audition for Juilliard, I just don't care anymore. But, wouldn't you know it, a handsome young boy is new into her class this year, and he too is a musical prodigy, Jacques Collimon, and he's studied in Paris and he's very attractive, and he too plays beautiful music. So maybe, just maybe, I can come out of my grief and start this new relationship with Jack Coleman. But my dead older sister's boyfriend, Pico Alexander, keeps on coming round the house. And basically, Grace Kaufman and Pico Alexander are the only two people who still have this overwhelming, overbearing grief for the death of Havana Rose Liu. So they find comfort and solace in each other, and at some point that crosses the line into actually kissing each other and hanging out a little bit too much with each other. So is it okay that this guy is essentially seducing his dead girlfriend's baby sister? I mean, yeah. but. The complicated relationship between Grace Kaufman and Pico Alexander and Grace Kaufman and Jacques Coleman forms the basis for this YA novel. And I, I think this does fit mostly into the category of the type of oversensitive, overly intense, all-consuming kind of YA romance that we have in these types of novels. But I do kind of understand why Josephine Decker was attracted to this project. Josephine Decker is a very flamboyant, very visual director. And some of the decisions she makes are very, very impressive. More often than not, in the visual representation of music, there are several scenes where hearing music transports the people on screen to some place different to something which is magical and heightened hearing a certain piece of music has a a physical response in the, the characters on the screen and also when you combine hearing this beautiful music with the first time you see this cute boy jack coleman in your band rehearsal room literally falling over and swooning at the beauty of the music and the beauty of this kid. I mean, it is some beautiful visual metaphors, uh, and hearing music together becomes very important, uh, and being literally embraced by the rose bushes which you are 
surrounded by you know the beauty of nature in this redwood forest in this nice little artists commune that cherry jones has built up in the middle of the californian redwood forest you know the visual representation is very well done and in these heightened realities we also have flashbacks i mean there's a brilliantly executed scene where grace kaufman is imagining what her dead sister's life was like and we see the dead sister havana rose liu walking down the center of the the nearest town which is i think eureka california and she is dancing and singing along and people come around and start joining in and dancing with her it's a little bit like the Bjork video for It's Oh So Quiet. And then we, we reach the end of this. And then the colour completely drains out of this and she starts crying. I mean, because Grace Kaufman is thinking about what would my sister think about if she knew that I have kissed her boyfriend? And then the reverse comes and Havana Rose Liu goes past all the people she's just been dancing with and all of them are crying, all of them are arguing with each other. It's dark it's rainy it's miserable and in one shot going in and one shot going out i mean the the good and the bad the heightened emotion of everything here and yeah the overly stylized overly elaborate visual style that josephine decker uses i think in a lot of ways is the perfect accompaniment to this kind of overwrought teen romance the combination of romance, the love you have as a teenager, is so profound, so all-encompassing. It is the most pure love I will ever have. I mean, I will stay with this 17-year-old relationship for the rest of my life, which, of course, never happens. But that's the kind of thing you want to read about when you're a you know, 14, 15, 16-year-old girl. But also combining that with death, with melancholy, with tragedy. The fact that this all-encompassing romance uh, or this all-encompassing romantic triangle between Grace Kaufman, Pico Alexander and Jack Coleman, this intensity that it has, it feels so profound, so important. And that's what you kind of need. I mean, I think it's very, very telling that Grace Kaufman's favourite novel, the book that she reads and rereads constantly, is Wuthering Heights. And if Wuthering Heights is your idea of the perfect romance, you're fucked up from the start, even before your older sister, your beloved older sister, died. I mean, getting romance cues from Wuthering Heights is a really, really bad idea. But anyway, that is the kind of all consuming romance which we are dealing with here. And the idea of just not being able to help yourself, I mean, you know, falling into each other's arms, I mean, this is so wrong, but right now we need this. Uh, and they are also having heightened reality of you know, a very, or potentially awkward moment happens between Grace Kaufman and Pico Alexander, you know, the first time that she has hugged her dead sister's boyfriend. And then we have the comedy boing sound effect. And it's clear what's happened, but you know, the drama and potential awkwardness of that situation is completely undercut by the comedy side effect. But it's that kind of film. 
And it does have that attitude of YA fiction, where the most important thing in the entire life is going to be this romance you had when you were 17. And it is, you know, destiny and all that kind of stuff. And by the end of the film, there's an added element of this film which basically lost me. It went too far into that melodramatic destiny kind of realm. Throughout the course of the film, there's been a pervasive voiceover, which I'm assuming comes from the original novel, since the screenplay was written by the original author, Jandy Nelson. But these aphorisms, these thoughts about grief, about love, about the connection that Grace Kaufman had with her older sister, you know, the most important person in her life was her older sister. And all these thoughts that are happening, and one of the ways that Grace Kaufman is dealing with grief is writing down these thoughts and then letting the wind take them, and you know, we see them floating through the forest through these redwood trees and you know it's a nice enough way of literalizing grief but the fate of those bits of paper the destiny which is brought out in those pieces of paper what they mean by the end of the film completely lost me i thought that is such bullshit that is overly romanticized overly portentous stuff. I mean, having this idea of fate by the end is such a childish attitude, in my opinion, but I guess it's supposed to be because this is a story essentially written for children, or at least, you know, 14, 15, 16-year-old girls. So, it has all the bad aspects of YA fiction and the eccentric and over-the-top flourishes that Josephine Decker puts on top of it as a very visual director aren't quite enough to bring it back from the brink. So yeah, it's an interesting film for Josephine Decker to have taken on. And she did as good a job as you could expect, but at the end of the day, this is an overly intense, overly emotive story aimed at tween girls and for me as a 40 plus year old man that just doesn't do anything for me so the sky is everywhere available through apple plus tv is a pretty dispassionate meh coming attractions after such a busy week this week next week i think will be a little quieter with only one cinematic trip to make but that doesn't necessarily mean that next week's episode is going to be any shorter i suppose now this week's episode the one cinematic trip i want to make this week is for the new british comedy the duke which stars jim broadbent as a pensioner in 1961 who, as a political statement, goes into the National Gallery and steals a portrait of the Duke of Wellington that was painted by Goya, making a statement about why is the British nation spending all this money on this painting 
when you could be taking care of war pensioners instead. So Jim Broadbent, this not particularly clever man, steals this priceless painting, much to the horror of Jim Broadbent's wife, Helen Mirren, when she actually discovers what's been happening. So that sounds like the kind of quirky, charming British comedy that we do so well. And the other cinematic release out next week, which I'm interested in, but I have already seen because there was a preview of it on Valentine's Day, is the musical Cyrano, starring Peter Dinklage. I have already seen it. I mean, it is a musical based on Cyrano de Bergerac with new songs by the rock band The National, who I am a fan of. Brief review of Cyrano. Peter Dinklage as an actor is excellent in Cyrano, but he is not known as a singer, and that infects the entirety of the film. So, a mixed bag, but Cyrano's kind of worth seeing, I guess, but a full review in next week's episode. There's another film that has been released onto Sky Cinema directly onto your Sky television set. It's called The Desperate Hour and stars Naomi Watts as a mother who is out for a jog, you know, miles away from anywhere. She's gone far into the woods and then receives a phone call that her son has been involved in a school shooting. And as far as I can tell, I think it's basically being held as a hostage. So Naomi Watts, with no other means of transportation, has to basically run to his son's school and try and help and protect him from this school shooting. And as far as I can tell, it's just Naomi Watts alone in the woods with a cell phone with this horrible situation going on on the other end of the line. And that has the potential to be rather interesting. So, yeah, The Desperate Hour on Sky Cinema is a film that continues being on the list, and I still haven't got round to last week's mildly Oscar-baity Western Old Henry, which was also released onto Sky Cinema, so that remains on the list as well. There is yet another Valentine's Day release, which somehow skipped me by. It was released onto Amazon Prime Video and is called The Hating Game, which stars Lucy Hale. Now, of that type of actress, you know, the kind of actress who was successful in a teen orientated TV show and has done the Scream Queen thing and is now trying to grow up a little bit, I think Lucy Hale of that ilk is actually pretty talented. So I am curious about this you know, rom-com, The Hating Game, where she plays an ambitious young woman who has a workplace rival who she wants to better and get promoted over, but wouldn't you know it, he's this hunky man who kind of hates her too, and of course romantic sparks aren't going to fly in this intense workplace rivalry so that sounds pretty simple but pretty fun and i do want to check out the hating game 
Also released onto streaming platforms is a micro, micro budget British film called Help, which basically looks like a three-handed story of a young woman who, out of the blue, calls on her old friend, but weird stuff is going on with her friend and her husband. So over the course of a night or a weekend, you know, strange things start happening. So, yeah, that looks interesting. It's one of those micro, micro budget films with very low production values, but a potentially interesting premise. So I do want to check out Help, albeit that will almost certainly be after the Oscar preview stuff that I'm doing at the moment, which I still am basically spending all my time doing. Speaking of which... On Netflix this week is a rather unexpected release, The Humans. Now, The Humans came out as a premium streaming film at the end of December, you know, on things like Curzon Home Cinema and things like that. And I've been waiting for it to become cheaper before I buy myself a rental of The Humans, because it is one of those films that has some Oscar prestige and Oscar potential, but it was never actually going to get any Oscar nominations. It's based on an award-winning play and has an excellent cast with people like Richard Jenkins and Beanie Feldstein and Amy Schumer and Stephen Yuen in it. So, you know, a good cast. Basically, a family gathers for a Thanksgiving meal in a crumbling new york apartment and this sort of like crumbling apartments is a metaphor for the crumbling family and weirdly it's just shown up on netflix this week so yeah i don't have to pay for the humans and i can watch it this week and hopefully include it in my oscar deliberations so that is being released onto netflix this week as is a Polish film called My Wonderful Life, which stars the awesome Polish actress Agata Buzak, who years ago was an honourable mention as a Best Supporting Actress for The Innocents for Me and the Royal Footage Awards. But Agata Buzak plays a frustrated middle-aged woman who is having an affair, and when somebody contacts her and tries to blackmail her, she is desperately trying to juggle things and keep her family and her life together. And judging by the trailer, it seems to be mostly played for laughs. So, yeah, I am intrigued by the Polish film on Netflix, My Wonderful Life. And there's also another thriller on Netflix called The Weekend Away, which seems like the type of film we have seen before you know an english-speaking person abroad who gets embroiled in uncomfortable stuff a young american woman goes for a raucous weekend away with her college friend to croatia and then the friend disappears and our protagonist is blamed by the croatian authorities for basically murdering her and she has to a figure out what happened because she was so hammered she doesn't remember the night in question and try and keep one step ahead of the croatian authorities so 
yeah, it could be an interesting type of thriller, but again, probably not going to get around to that until after I've done all my Oscar preview stuff. And as I was looking around and trying to figure out what was available, it suddenly occurred to me that I hadn't checked on Shudder.com for a while. I mean, as I constantly say, I am not a fan of horror films, but every now and again, Shudder releases something that I'm actually interested in. So I checked it out, and as it turns out, there is a film on Shudder that was released back in January that I am kind of interested in. It is called The Last Thing Mary Saw, and it is set in the late 19th century, where a very strict, very religious family has a tragedy occur to them and in flashback we see this tragedy through the now blind eyes of the daughter of this family Isabel Furman. Now Isabel Furman when I saw her name on the cast list that tipped over the balance and made me want to check it out because Isabel Furman has been listed on the Gold Derby lists of Oscar potential as best actress for a film called The Novice which basically seems like the kind of whiplash setup, you know, college student desperately trying to be the best at something. But this is whiplash for a rowing team in college. And Isabel Furman is the star and is apparently getting very good reviews. So I thought, okay, Isabel Furman's got this film called The Novice. I might as well check out the other film she did in 2021, The Last Thing Mary Saw. And then as I was looking her up, I realised oh shit, Isabel Furman's the little kid from Orphan back in the day. So yeah, that's a a really clever and really bizarre horror movie. But Isabel Furman was the evil kid in Orphan, and now she's grown up and is doing other stuff as well, including apparently a prequel to Orphan, which seems far too late in the day for that particular thing, especially if you know the plot and the twist of Orphan but regardless Isabel Furman's in this horror film The Last Thing Mary Saw and that intrigued me enough that it has been added to the list but will probably not be an immediate watch for me. So what does remain on the list of urgent things I need to check out is all the Oscar Beatty stuff I need to catch up on and that includes Sean Penn's directorial effort Flag Day, which premiered at the Cannes Film Festival and stars him and his daughter Dylan Penn, about a young woman who grows up and doesn't realise that her father is actually one of the biggest counterfeiters in American history. I I guess I'd better check that out to be absolutely thorough in my Oscar preview deliberations, but that doesn't really spark any great interest for me. The one non-Oscar Beatty film I am desperate to see this week, now that it's going to be a little bit quieter, is Jean-Pierre Jeunet's film released onto Netflix, Big Bug, which is basically a candy-coated Jetsons-style near future where AI basically does everything and then there's a robot uprising. So a group of suburbanites are trapped together in the same house by the well-meaning household robots who don't want them to go outside and be killed by the robots. 
but when you are trapped together with awkward combinations like the owner of the house was trying to hook up with a handsome man and then her ex-husband and new much younger girlfriend shows up the teenage kids of these families are together etc etc lots of awkward situations so yeah i do want to check out the big bug this week so yeah it is still going to be probably a quite lengthy show next week although not nearly as long as this one but regardless that is what is currently on the list a reminder that there were two yays in this particular episode at very different ends of the spectrum very different types of yay firstly we have i want you back which on its own terms absolutely works i completely buy the friendship between the protagonists so when it turns romantic it's all the more special and it's also in places very very funny as you would expect from a film with jenny slate and charlie day in it so yes on its own terms i want you back on amazon prime is a rock solid very entertaining romantic comedy and for me that qualifies it as a yay and then we come to the other yay in this film wheel of fortune and fantasy which i fully anticipate to be one of my best films of 2022 i really really like this film i like it a lot more than drive my car and i was already a huge fan of yusuke hamaguchi's drive my car but this hit me so much harder the intensity of these situations the profundity of these conversations the questions it raises about coincidence and chance and regret and misunderstanding it's really powerful stuff i mean i am a sucker for films which are basically just long conversations between two people and in this film we get at least five of these really long conversations and all of them are outstanding so yeah wheel of fortune and fantasy i really really enjoyed i hope you do have the opportunity to see it hopefully in the cinema but if not it will be available streaming very soon and for me wheel of fortune and fantasy is an unqualified outstanding yay so that's the end of the show and all that remains for me to say is this has been yay nay omer presented by the raw footage podcast i've been your host conan gaisley coming to you from bath in the southwest of england email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod and i'll see you next time or i shine a light on cinema both obvious and obscure Ah!